This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. The Ron Paul Homeschool Curriculum is a self-directed education trove for ages 5 to adult. Students will learn all about economics, history, mathematics, science, and even business and personal finance. To sign up for the Ron Paul Homeschool Curriculum, please use our special link at ronpauleducation.com. That's ronpauleducation.com. Uh, before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule... Go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. So let's let's just go ahead and start. Um, it's nice to meet you. How do you say your last name? Vespasian. Vespasian. John Vespasian. And uh, Okay, so I've just been looking over your author bio. And it looks like you've published several books. I'm looking at them right now on Amazon, and they're all pretty interesting to me just based on the titles and kind of digging in. You send me the contents of one of the books that I've kind of looked through. And it also says that you've lived all over Europe. So why don't we start with, uh, why don't you tell me where you were born and, and where you grew up? I'm originally from Spain. I have been uh, living in different countries. So as you can see, I speak uh, English with European accent. And I've been to the States only a few times, although most of my readers are American. But mostly my, my life has been in Europe, in Germany, uh, Belgium for a while, in Spain, of course, uh, and currently live in the Netherlands. But um, uh, for Americans, uh, they have a, an idea of Europe like it's, um, it's huge, uh, but the countries are really very small. And it's not so rare for an, for an European to move from country to country, even just a couple of hours with a car. The only thing is that you have to learn the languages because otherwise you cannot actually interact there. How, how widespread is English? Um, almost everybody speaks uh, English in the Netherlands because uh, I saw a couple of weeks ago um, a study and apparently it's the, the country where people speak English the best, a second language. And this is because the TV, uh, most most of shows are in English, so uh, most people pick up English uh, fairly well. Uh, in the rest of Europe, uh, it's erratic. Uh, if you go to Italy, you will find relatively few people who speak English, only young people. Uh, if you go to Spain, it's even worse. France is really pathetic. Uh, but if you go to the northern countries like uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, people speak English very well, very well. So of everywhere you've lived in Europe, and let's just um, uh, Germany, Italy, France, Spain, Netherlands, and I'm sure you've been in and out of some other places. What, which of those would you say is your favorite? Uh, I would say the Netherlands is a great choice. 
especially it's times where you see most countries lock up uh, with the coronavirus. Here, uh, we barely see anything. It's, uh, now we have, um, for the last weeks, yeah, the restaurants are closed. Other than that, uh, it has been very peaceful. We didn't have any uh, drastic measures. I think the government is, uh, is fairly balanced. I think it might be even better. But uh, other countries in Europe have been very, very um, uh, drastic uh, measures. Uh, people have been suffering a lot. I mean, unemployment in some countries is uh, skyrocketing. So it's, um, I mean, my books are about rationality. And especially in these times of uh, adversity, when people are confronted with uh, extreme circumstances, I think it's very important uh, to know how to stay sane, uh, how to stay effective, and to prevent uh, people just from basically destroying their lives. Because uh, some people just give up completely. Uh, they start drinking or they, they get into um, very uh, self-defeating behavior. And they don't realize that uh, this is just temporary. I mean, obviously, we'll go. It will go away. I don't know when. Hopefully, very soon, and then people will be able to uh, to recover uh, whatever they lost. So I think we should not give up. It's uh, it's very unfortunate uh, the situation we are we are going through. But um, I look at, always at history in my books uh, to learn uh, how to behave and how to think in these kind of circumstances. And of course, it's not the first time that in history people have to face uh, extreme circumstances. It's just that uh, we're not we're not used to that anymore because there are not so many wars uh, uh, nowadays in in, uh, in industrialized countries. But uh, these kind of extreme circumstances they have happened uh, hundreds of times in history, and we have to learn um, the lesson that uh, this has to be avoided. Uh, this kind of uh, craziness has to be. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. I mean, we we can look at survival rates and mortality rates. And we can see what groups of people, what demographics that this particular disease is, is having the worst effect on, in which it's not having much of an effect. And then we can compare that with other pandemics in the past, you know, to kind of put it in context. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't do that. <laughs> um, I, you know, what, what strikes me as unique about the current uh, moment with the coronavirus is just how connected the world is. And so, I mean, China handles it in their Chinese authoritarian way. And it kind of gave the impression, I think, that this is, this is you know, the worst virus ever to hit the human race. And so that Chinese model was then implemented and adopted everywhere. And I think it's because we're all so interconnected we can see what's happening almost in real time all over the world. And so we all kind of react together or the governments of the world react together. And some of them, you know, do it differently and then they get scorned for it. But it was I just remember early on, it was just that feeling that what we're going through right now, everybody else in the world is also going through it right now. Like it was really kind of it was strange in the sense that I felt connected to everybody else in the world through this common uh, this common challenge. Now, I've been self-employed since 2015. So I, you know, currently I do a lot of gig work and stuff like that. Um, food delivery. So when when restaurants closed down where I'm at here in, in Salt Lake City, Utah, restaurants closed down, but a lot of them still did delivery and stuff. So I I stayed employed and I continue to be employed. So there hasn't been much of an interruption 
to my life or the life of my family. My children don't go to school, so they just continued on doing what they've always done as well. But feeling like this isn't a hasn't been a big deal to me, both the virus and the response to the virus, it can keep me from seeing the actual um, suffering that people are going through. And here, you know, like you say, here in the first world, this is this is something that we're not used to because we have it. We've had it so well for so long, you know, and, and that's not everybody. There's a lot of people that suffer day in, day out, even in the first world, even in the in industrialized world. Um, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but. Well, I have a, I have a different view of the situation because sure. I regard the uh, coronavirus um, story as basically irrelevant. Uh, one of the uh, theories I, I present in my books is what I call the theory of the inception point is that uh, when people sometimes get, they get a heart attack or they, they get uh, some sickness, uh, they usually say, oh, I was doing well, and suddenly I got this heart attack and my life was destroyed. And it's a bit the, the story of the coronavirus. Everything was going fine, and then suddenly we get this uh, situation which is um, massively authoritarian, massively irrational, uh, total hysteria. Uh, people are, are scared uh, to death. Most of the time, uh, in a wildly exaggerated uh, way. And in my view, um, it could have been the coronavirus, could have been something else. In the end, the problem was that there was a, a very um, a serious uh, vulnerability in our uh, democracy. And uh, many people, uh, for many years, uh, they have lost the habit of uh, checking the facts. They have lost the, the habit of uh, getting information from different sources. Uh, they are very naive. Uh, in what they believe, they don't check uh, uh, the facts. And of course, if you're lucky and your whole life goes well, you can survive pretty well. But from time to time, uh, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to believe stories that are not true. I think in the case of this coronavirus, in the end, we will only know the whole truth, I think, in a few years when actually the, the smoke uh, goes up and when the dust uh, falls down, then we will know exactly what happens today. We're in the middle of this fog. It's very difficult to know what's going on. But it seems pretty clear that uh, the story is exaggerated. It has been exaggerated from the beginning. Uh, in many countries, it has been uh, massively exaggerated. And uh, many people who have no reason to be fearful are uh, massively terrorized. I mean, terrorized to, to an extent that uh, they are suffering from, from really anxiety and, and fear. Um, similar to the, I don't know, to the Second World War or to the First World War, when people were dying in millions and millions and millions and people were really dropping dead. And this is not the case today. I mean, you really have to, I mean, it has never happened that people go walking in the street and people start to fall dead out of uh, this virus. I mean, it doesn't happen. It's just uh, um, extreme fear that, uh, I mean, we're not dealing with Ebola or something like this. I mean, it's just a virus, fine, okay. Uh, some people have to protect themselves, especially uh, old people. But for most of the population, it's really uh, invisible. And the level of fear, the level of vulnerability we have, I think, it was pre-existing. It was invisible because uh, if you are doing well, fine. But uh, when you deal with this kind of disruptions, it really shows uh, the vulnerabilities and the, the, the lack of uh, self-reliance that existed already. And this is very serious because um, today is this coronavirus and tomorrow could be something else. And there is a lesson to learn from these situations. I mean, the lesson uh, is very hard sometimes, but uh, you have to realize that uh, you have to build your life in the most 
uh, in the most possible self-reliant way. You have to to try to build your independence, to try to save money, to try to stay uh, ahead of the game by learning new skills. And if you believe, and this is something that in my books I attack uh, very, very strongly, if you believe uh, in continuity, that uh, what happens today is the thing that's going to happen tomorrow and everything is going to be fine, you are fooling yourself because it is inevitable that you get disruptions. And today is the coronavirus, tomorrow you might get fired or you might get some kind of sickness or you might get the divorce. And unless you have been building your self-reliance and your self-confidence and your rationality for years, uh, you will react with panic and you will uh, get depressed and you will make mistakes. And this is the whole purpose of my books, uh, to try to help readers uh, to become a little bit more rational, a little bit more effective uh, by looking at history, by looking at uh, dozens and dozens of uh, biographies of different people and trying to learn from them how to react. Uh, because uh, the crisis will always come and affect. If you are going to be ready, uh, you have to do it in advance because otherwise you will panic and you will become uh, fearful, you will become anx- anxious, and you will make mistake after mistake. And this is something I see today. Uh, it's, it's, it's awful uh, how terrified uh, some people are uh, because they don't have this habit of rationality of checking. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you. There's a, there's a, there's a major lack of rationality right now and one of the one of the earliest signs of that would be i would say would be when social media companies like you youtube and facebook youtube came out and said we're not going to allow any videos on our service that depart from the official line that we get from the world health organization or from the american cdc the center for disease control so if you're going to publish a video that contradicts what they're saying, even though they've contradicted themselves over the beginning months of this, then we're going to pull your video. And there were qualified uh, physicians and epidemiologists and economists and, uh, you know, what have you, putting out their their content, talking about it and their experience with this, and the videos were getting pulled. And so right away, it's like rationality's out the door. Rationality would be, I think, would be allowing you know, everybody to have their voice and then everybody to, to, to judge it. Because these, these, these alternative perspectives are still going to exist. Just because you take the video down, it doesn't mean, you know, these, these people are forever silenced. But now you're making it a seditious thing. And that attracts, I think, that attracts, uh, that, that makes it attractive in a different way. But anyways, it, it just, yeah, you're right. Rationality has been out the window with this thing, and it's definitely been sensationalized. And I think that that has served uh, people very well. You know, media companies make a lot of money off of uh, sensationalizing things and keeping people hooked to their television screens and watching their coverage of it. <laughs> so, you know, the media always sensationalize, sensationalizes pretty much everything. And then you have the politics thrown in, at least here in the U.S., uh, because this happened during an election year. So now you've got partisanship, which is its own form of irrationality, taking uh, taking root on either side of, you know, whether you, wear, whether you should wear a mask, whether you should lock down, this, this, that. People sort of, you know, go to their teams and it just becomes superheated. And then I know there are have been places in Europe and, of course, in Asia that have experienced large social upheavals with protests and whatnot. And we kind of watched that, not not this year, but the year before and the year before that, we kind of watched that at a distance. And then in the summer of this year, 
that kind of thing exploded here. So we've had disruptions after disruptions. And for the most part, the initial disruption, at least here with the pandemic, has been hyped up and overblown. I agree with you there. And then we have these other things that happen. <laughs> and then we have the partisanship. And then we have the election. And it's just been it's been a nonstop onslaught of irrationality. And I think probably the most rational thing a person could do is to just turn it all off. <laughs> um, yeah, but the Skylar, on the other hand, um, it has always been like this. Yeah. Uh, when I hear people uh, saying, OK, I mean, it's really horrible that uh, this uh, media company or this uh, Internet platform, they are removing uh, videos or they're removing uh, messages that do not conform to their policies. In the end, it has always been like this. I mean, today is very visible because uh, if you are watching a, a YouTube uh, channel, it disappears. Okay, it's super, super obvious. But this kind of um, information manipulation or information restriction, I mean, it has gone on for centuries. And then if you go to any um, uh, situation in history where you have uh, tension, uh, whether it's uh, governmental, international, information has always been suppressed has always been manipulated. And this is why I'm saying that uh, you have to build uh, your self-reliance, you have to build your rationality um, to be able to deal with the situations. Because if you're reading one newspaper, you're reading one, you're watching one uh, TV show, and this is your only source of information, and then you rely on that, uh, it's very, very risky. Because people might lie to you, uh, they might have an agenda, uh, the, the, the show might be um, uh, discontinued, uh, the TV channel might disappear, whatever. So this is why I say you have to have different sources of information because if people are, I mean, just the example you just made, they watch a couple of uh, YouTube channels because they like the, the message and they like the information and they just disappear because they are deleted or they are removed, whatever. Well, uh, if you have another 20 uh, podcasts you're listening to and you have another 20 uh, uh, RSS uh, uh, sources of feeds on your uh, iPhone or your telephone, wherever, you will never be lacking information. You will always have a backup uh, source. You will always have uh, uh, a way to get the information. And the same goes for your career. Let me just give you an example from uh, my um, I try to present uh, in the books uh, stories of people who go through uh, tremendous uh, disruptions and they have to go through adversity and they have to follow um, uh, patterns of behavior that are not self-evident. And um, just to give you an example, one of the, the stories I presented, uh, I think it was the book before the last uh, was the, the life of William Turner, who was a great uh, artist uh, in the beginning of the 19th century. And people know Turner because he was, uh, I mean, you can see paintings of his uh, in many museums, but very few people actually know that Turner was um, savagely attacked by newspapers. Most of his life, uh, he had to face uh, massive uh, uh, negative criticism uh, from journalists, from newspapers, and you have to realize in the news in the 19th century, uh, newspapers were the media. Huh? There was basically nothing else. And if you lived in London as he lived, and you are constantly criticized by newspapers, telling you that you were a fool, that you don't know how to draw, that uh, you are worthless as a painter, uh, it's very difficult to recover. And I found the story fascinating because Turner was very shy. He had a very um, uh, low-key personality. 
And eventually he became uh, extremely successful and extremely wealthy. And I found the story very intriguing because this is a typical situation that I analyze in my book. Because I say, how could he remain uh, rational? How could he remain uh, motivated in such a horrible environment? Because he was being crucified daily. I mean, he was, people were laughing at him eh, when he was uh, walking in the street because the newspapers were, every time he, he, uh, he uh, made a new exhibition, he was really savaged by the critics. And in the end, uh, what Turner did, and then he was, he was sort of, at the beginning, he was trying to uh, become friends with the newspapers, with the journalists, trying to invite people for uh, exhibitions, for cocktails. And then he gave up because they, they continued to attack him because they did not understand his, uh, his new, uh, his innovations. In fact, he was an innovator, one of the first uh, pre-impressionists. And in the end, he just gave up and said, I don't care. I'm going to find my market. I'm going to find my customers. And he built uh, basically a, a painting machinery uh, that was, I mean, amazing because he was completely independent from the newspapers, completely independent from galleries. And he built uh, such a productive uh, way of living that uh, it has never happened in history. I mean, the end, Turner uh, figured out nobody was going to help him. Nobody was going to tell him uh, that he was great, that he was really great. Nobody was going to, uh, to promote him. So in the end, he said, well, I'm going to do it myself. And just going to ignore all these stupid uh, journalists, stupid newspapers that will never help me. And he built uh, a system, a production system, a, a business uh, system that allowed him to make a lot of money independent of the uh, newspapers. And the way he did it is fascinating because he realized uh, how to produce uh, three or four paintings per day, which nobody in history had ever done. And he realized that uh, he was very poor at, um, at uh, conception. He was a really very, um, very, low crea- very low creativity uh, person. So in the end, what he did, if I managed to get a lot of uh, new concepts, I can produce paintings very quickly. Because he was a very fast uh, painter, but a very slow thinker. And eventually, he found a way to do it that nobody uh, he had done in history before. Uh, what he did was during the summer, uh, during the from June to September, he just took a, a, a sketchbook and he walked around Europe. Uh, he spent almost no money because he was just eating cheese and, and drinking water. I mean, he almost uh, spent nothing. And he walked around Europe. He would walk around Belgium, around Switzerland, around uh, Scotland, and he made the sketches. Uh, he made a dozen and dozen of sketches of cathedrals, uh, churches, uh, mountains. And then he returned to London and he spent the winter in his room uh, painting uh, three paintings per day. He was able to make a fortune because he just produced so many paintings that he could uh, sell them to doctors, uh, to, um, to lawyers around the country. Eventually, he started uh, to sell in, in, the, in New York because he got an agent. And it's fascinating because by the time he died, he, he left 2,000 paintings unsold. You have to realize the productivity of this guy. And I find the story fascinating because he was able to stay sane, to stay rational in a situation that uh, it's horrible. I mean, imagine that, uh, Scott, imagine that uh, you go out on the street and everybody starts laughing at you and everybody starts criticizing you and everybody starts, starts to tell you, oh, you're really worthless. This happened to Turner for decades and eventually he made uh, a great career. So this is the kind of uh, spirit I think people have to develop uh, today because we are facing uh, situations of, uh, of panic, uh, massive constraints, uh, massive uh, obstacles to personal development. Unless you develop this kind of strength of character, 
uh, you will go down uh, in these situations because uh, you will feel lonely, you will feel depressed, you will feel powerless, and this is not correct. So let's back up a minute then. Let me, let me, let's, let's go back to first principles. How do you define rationality? For me, it's the, the ability to draw conclusions uh, by looking at the facts, um, by, by using logic. Uh, the more you know, of course, and the, the more facts you take into account, uh, you, will be, you will get better and better at, uh, at uh, drawing conclusions. But sometimes it's not, uh, it's not uh, necessary. I mean, if you are making a decision which is very small, like deciding, okay, which uh, T-shirts are going to buy, I mean, you are risking 5 or $10 dollars. But if you are making a big decision like uh, getting married or deciding your profession or enrolling in university or uh, moving to another country, then you really have to make some research and you really have to try to stay rational because if you make a mistake, it will be very expensive. So for me, this, this kind of uh, uh, self-reliance uh, to be able to think for yourself, to be able to draw conclusions, even if you are at odds with the majority, is very important. And this is, for me, is one of the key aspects of education. If you are not able to do that, you are not really educated. You are just memorizing nonsense. But when, when you have a crisis, when you're facing a problem, you will not be able to think. And this is very, very dangerous. Yeah, no, I, I really like I really like that definition. I kind of just took a note here um, that says logical conclusions from facts. I guess is kind of how I would sum up what you just said. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes. Okay. But in the end, you have to think also uh, about which facts are relevant. Uh, how much time or energy are you going to invest uh, in finding the truth? For instance, if you are sick, I imagine you have I don't know you have uh, um, I don't know cancer or whatever. It makes sense to spend uh, immense amounts of time and energy trying to find a cure because uh, basically you're risking your life and there is no limit uh, to the investment. I mean, until you find the solution and you get, uh, you get well. If you are deciding something trivial, like uh, what you're going to have for lunch today, obviously you should not spend too much time. But uh, um, to develop this, this mentality is different. It's difficult because if you're used to following instructions without thinking, you get uh, sick, you just go to a doctor and he tells you, oh, you have cancer, you need to get, I don't know, radiation, whatever. You do not question the advice. You do not question the recommendation. And this is extremely dangerous. Uh, you have to realize that uh, um, people might have an agenda. They make mistakes. Um, this is very serious. Let me just give you an example. One of the uh, my favorite uh, writers is uh, uh, George Simenon. He was a, a, a writer from the... 1940s to the 1980s, uh, he used to write detective novels. And at one time, Simenon, during the Second World War, he was living in, in, uh, in France. Uh, he had pain in his, uh, in his chest. He went to the doctor, uh, a doctor in, the, his, uh, in his town, and they thought, oh, you have a very serious heart condition. You're going to die within two months. And the way it was scared shitless, uh, he went back home and said, oh, my God, I'm going to die. So basically, he stopped uh, writing, and this was a guy who could write a book in a week. He stopped writing. Uh, he got very depressed. Uh, he said goodbye to his wife, uh, to his friends. And then after um, a few weeks, he was not feeling really sick, so he went to another doctor. I said, uh, I thought um, I'd rather check, uh, ask for a second opinion, because um, I thought I was going to die. And then he was... Um, 
told, well, actually, you don't have anything. It's fine. I mean, maybe uh, the day you got your first check, uh, you were, uh, I don't know, you had a bad sleep uh, night or, or you were stressed, but uh, the, he was checked thoroughly and they told him, you don't have anything. So what did the guy do? He said, in the future, I'm always going to check uh, important things at least twice. So he went back home and he started to write immediately his next book. And he continued to write uh, book after book uh, until his uh, 80s. He was very productive. But uh, from that time on, he was really skeptical about doctors. And he always checked uh, things uh, thoroughly because uh, he realized he had been very naive. Very naive. And, and the problem with, I think, many people is that uh, they tend to trust a single source without checking anything. And this is very dangerous. This is why I always try to encourage uh, rationality, uh, learning. Uh, checking different sources because uh, sometimes you are really playing with your life. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not a trivial matter. Uh, what was that author's name? Uh, George uh, Simon. He wrote uh, detective uh, novels. H- how do you say his last name again? Uh, Simenon. You write uh, S I M E N O N. Okay, George. George Simenon. He was from Belgium, but he wrote. He wrote in French, and he got. Uh, there are a lot of translations also. Okay. No, I just want to. Put them in the notes here. That's a that's an interesting. <laughs> that's definitely um, that's definitely an instructive example that relying totally on one source for information, whether it's about your health or the news or somebody's telling you these are the facts. I mean, everybody has their blind spots and everybody has their biases. So if somebody's telling you these are the facts, there are always going to be facts that. Either that person is ignorant of or that person disregarded or discarded because they didn't judge them as important or relevant. And then it's just their own opinion on whether or not that's the case coming into it. So you check with somebody else, they give you different a different set of facts that they've judged as important. And they've also left out other facts that they've judged as less important because not everybody can have all the information. You're gonna. You're still gonna be in better shape because now you have two perspectives instead of one. If you can get three perspectives, four. Now, obviously, there's a time and an effort investment in getting this information. So you've really got to do the rational thing and, and judge for yourself how important is it that I have all the information. You know what? What is the decision ultimately that I got to make? What is it concern? How important is it? Is it is it a decision over my health or is it a decision over which uh, which company I want to clean my car, you know? <laughs> so there's there's different um, levels of importance. And yeah, I would like just to say, yeah, <clears throat> Scott, I would like just to say a few words about uh, positive thinking, which in my books I, I strongly um, uh, discourage people to uh, embrace positive thinking. I think in in the U.S. it's a dominant philosophy. People are constantly bombarded with uh, uh, messages. You just do it, uh, go for it, uh, don't think about it. I think you have to be very careful. I think it's one of the reasons why in the U.S. you have about 50 million people taking medication against uh, depression and anxiety. Um, you have to be careful about this message uh, because being foolish and being um, uh, imprudent uh, rarely pays. I mean, um, you can find uh, from time to time one case where, where someone doing something foolish uh, and make, uh, I don't know, millions in the stock market. It, it doesn't work in the long term. I mean, if you just keep pushing, pushing, eventually you will crash against the wall. You have to, to realize that uh, um, 
most people who succeed, and you read the stories in the newspapers, uh, they did a lot of trial and error. Sometimes uh, they took uh, years, they took sometimes decades uh, to develop a skill. And when you look at uh, the story as it is reported in the t on TV or in newspapers, it looks like super easy. It looks like a linear story. And this guy, would, I mean, just me just give an example from my books. Uh, in one, I think it was in the latest book. The latest book, I, I analyzed the biography of um, uh, Dale uh, Carnegie, who wrote a lot of books about uh, how to make friends, personal development, this kind of stuff. And this guy became a best-selling writer. Still, even if he died, I think about uh, 30 years ago, uh, he's still selling a lot of books. Uh, when people read these books that are always very positive, uh, very encouraging, they get a completely wrong idea about uh, Carnegie. Because Carnegie himself is the perfect example that uh, positive thinking, you have to be very careful because the guy uh, basically became uh, a best-selling writer after massive uh, failure in different professions. Because if you look at his biography, I mean, he was a salesman for years. Uh, he failed uh, totally and completely. Then he wanted to be an actor, and he went to New York. He studied in the Academy for the Dramatic Arts in New York. He wanted to be an actor. He didn't manage to land uh, any role. He, tr he tried different auditions. And eventually, out of uh, basically desperation, uh, he started to teach uh, uh, courses, evening courses for adults in the YMCA, uh, he developed uh, a course on, on public speaking, and he wrote the book. The book didn't sell at all, and he was for years uh, completely unknown. And eventually, after he wrote uh, a second book uh, 10 years later about how to make friends, then he started to sell. And eventually, after many, many years, he became a best-selling writer and very famous and very, very wealthy. But you have to look at the whole story. And when you look only at the superficial message, that, oh, you can do it, you can do anything, uh, it's complete nonsense. Most careers uh, require a lot of learning, require a lot of rationality, requires a lot of uh, um, trial and error. And if you don't look at details and you don't explore uh, what is behind, uh, you are going to be fooled, you are going to believe uh, uh, complete nonsense, and you are going to crash against the wall because you are going to be um, wildly over-optimistic, and you're going to do foolish things. And in my books, I try to warn people against these, uh, these delusions because they are very dangerous. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, they are widespread in our culture. Uh, I think people get pushed uh, to doing completely foolish things, and the results are catastrophic. Huh? I mean, people get bankrupt, uh, they, they lose their, their, their savings, um, they end up on the street. It's really horrible. And a little bit of prudence and a little bit of, uh, of uh, thoughtfulness will go a long way in preventing uh, massive errors. Uh, don't you believe the, the, the stories you see in the newspapers? Uh, most of them, they don't tell you the whole thing. They tell you only the, the, the nice part of the story. And uh, Don't be naive. Don't be naive because uh, you might uh, suffer the consequences. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really easy to get to get hooked by, you know, by, by charismatic people, right? I mean, th this is, this is what politics runs on, right? It runs on putting forward somebody with some charisma that can, you know, ultimately just hoodwink everybody into believing that, that they're the answer to their problems. <laughs> um, 
but that you know that that just simply can't be true. Some other person, especially some other person who's a thousand miles away in Washington or London or wherever, can never be the answer to your problems. Only you can be the answer to your problems. Um, so whatever your problems are, it's time to to sit down and do the rational thing and figure out how to solve them. Let me. Um, so you sent me the table of contents to your your uh, your 2012 book, The Ten Principles of Rational Living. Um, what if I give you each of the chapter titles and you just kind of give me a summary of kind of what you're talking about there? And I'm going to link to your author page and everything, and I'll probably buy a book or two myself. Um, Perfect. Let's let's go. Okay, so chapter one. So this is The Ten Principles of Rational Living. Uh, chapter one, think like an entrepreneur, not like a crusader. I like that. What's that about? Um this is a very controversial um, idea because uh, when you look at uh, uh, industrial leaders, uh, politicians, uh, they try to appear as crusaders. Right? They say, oh, I have this idea and I have to make the idea um, into, I have to make my dream true and I have to fight. They use the military uh, vocabulary. I have to fight for this and I have to to." to destroy my competition and they have this very aggressive um, vocabulary and i think it's completely wrong it's uh, it's, uh, it's uh, complete nonsense uh, nobody has actually in history uh, succeeded by being aggressive you might win a war but eventually someone will stab you on the back it's, it's complete nonsense uh, napoleon ended up very badly alexander the great ended up badly and hitler and stalin and all of them i mean it doesn't work and in this chapter, I have to um, uh, refer to the story where I got the story, the idea for the book from a biography. I will tell you very quickly. Um, this is a, a, a guy named Semmelweis. He was um, living in Vienna. And he discovered uh, by chance, because he was uh, working as a, an obstetrician, he discovered a chance that uh, if you wash your hands uh, before uh, delivering a baby, um, uh, the baby will will get uh, sick less often. And he didn't know why. I mean, he discovered it by chance because he was uh, working part-time into hospitals. And in one hospital, uh, babies died, but like 50% of the babies, of uh, the newborns died. And in a hospital, it was only 10%. And the guy could not figure out why uh, there was such a huge difference in mortality. And eventually he found the answer by, because one of the doctors died, and he figured out that it had something to do with uh, with washing your hands. Because in one of the hospitals, uh, they had, um, it was a, a university hospital, and they did uh, autopsies, uh, basically they, um, for, for teaching. And they cut up the corpses, and then the doctors went from the, from the lecture to delivering babies without washing their hands. Basically, they, they didn't know about washing their hands in the, in the 19th century. Right. So they went from one thing to the other, and the babies die. And in the other hospital, uh, it was a hospital for nurses, so they didn't actually uh, did any autopsies. Uh, the babies, uh, most of them uh, lived and they were very healthy. So eventually he realized there was some connection between washing your hand and, um, and delivering babies. And he was so uh, convinced because he was actually a scientist. He made the statistics and said, this has to be the, the reason. So he made experiments himself, and he proved that he was right. And what happened then? Well, what happened is that the guy was right, but uh, everybody thought he was crazy because his uh, colleagues, uh, when he told them 
they told him, what do you know? I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, you are just a young doctor, uh, get lost. And he was fired. He was fired from his job. Eventually he got another job in a, in a smaller hospital. He started to write letters to the newspapers. He started to, to write letters to the, to the medical association. And eventually he was, uh, his career was destroyed. He started to drink and he died in a psychiatric hospital. And the guy was right. The guy was 100% right. And uh, the story is very interesting because uh, he became a crusader. He was right. He tried to convince everybody, but he didn't realize that uh, many people are stunningly irrational. If they have especially an agenda or they have something to protect, even if it's their only, they're trying just to protect their own mistakes, they will not listen and they will attack you. Uh, the, 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 the idea in this chapter is what uh, should this guy have done? What should, uh, his name was Semmelweis, what should Semmelweis uh, have done? Uh, what I say is that in these cases, you should never fight. You should never become a crusader because it's suicide. You should try to exploit uh, your knowledge commercially, become a businessman. I mean, uh, Semmelweis could have made fortune by having the best hospital in Europe uh, for delivering babies. He would have been a star. He could have made millions. But instead of becoming uh, an entrepreneur, he became a crusader and he destroyed his life because he was fighting against uh, narrow-minded people, people with an agenda, uh, very um, entrenched uh, interest. And eventually, even if he was right, uh, he was destroyed. And I think it is very important to people to become realistic that uh, in some environments, you will not be able to convince anybody because uh, they will not listen to you. They will think you're crazy, even if you're right. So don't waste your time fighting. And I, I, I never use this word when we are talking about business because I think it's wrong. Don't fight, sell, learn to sell. Learn to make money, learn to use your, your talents, but don't fight people. It's a waste of time. They will get angry. Uh, they will make your life difficult, and it's stupid. Don't, don't waste your time fighting. Uh, try to sell your ideas. Try to sell your, your talent, your, your skills, uh, your products, and this is the way to become successful. And I think when we're talking about uh, philosophical ideas, it is the same. Do not fight. Do not waste time with people who don't want to learn. Try to sell your ideas to people who are willing uh, to listen to you. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. Oh my gosh, I I really like that. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, just just thinking about that example about that guy. I've I've heard that story before about going from you know doing the autopsies, and this was before germ theory, so they they had no idea you know why this problem was happening. And then and then you're right, this guy instead of just saying, okay, I've got this knowledge, I'm going to take it and make a fortune with it, or try to make a fortune with it, I'm going to try to. I'm going to go into war mode and go on the war path and try to convince, right? The the crusade like you talk about, and it ended up not working out very well. Uh, you know, I changed my mind. I'm not going to ask you about every chapter. I think that might take too long. Let me just, that was chapter one. Let's jump down to um, chapter seven. This, this seems uh, timely right now, except the inevitable hassles of life. Yes, um, uh, this, is, this chapter is encouraging people uh, to move to another country, I have to say, because um, I mean, in Europe, the countries are small and it's very easy to relocate. In the U.S., of course, you live in such a huge country that uh, uh, very few people would actually think of uh, going elsewhere. But I have to say, I have to tell you, I mean, when I listen to people complaining constantly about, uh, I don't know, regulations, taxes, uh, constraints, uh, all kinds of problems, I say, for God's sake, just move. 
uh, I mean, there are a lot of countries in the world where you can uh, really uh, uh, make a lot of money with your skills. Uh, you will be ahead of the game if you move to a country um, that is less advanced because you will know much more than, than the average person there. And uh, I mean, waiting for the world to change and to, to really give you a, a, the chance you want uh, might take uh, 20 years or 30 years. And, and for most people, this is not feasible. So if you are really, really unhappy about uh, uh, the situation, uh, you might consider moving. Because, okay, there are things in life you really have to deal with. I mean, they, what I call hassles, normal hassles. You will get from time to time. Uh, you will have to disagreements with customers. You will might have discussions with your wife, um, uh, disagreements with your wife. I mean, this is normal. This is, this is normal life. It's nothing special. But if you are dealing with situations that are really insufferable, because you are dealing with a very bad uh, employment market, uh, you are living in a place that is really depressed, there are no opportunities, for God's sake, uh, learn another language. Move. It's very cheap to move. I mean, people think it's like uh, I don't know, going to um, to uh, America in the 16th century. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, you can buy a ticket uh, to fly for three hundred dollars. Uh, you can go to another country. Uh, I mean, explore. I mean, it takes very little money. Uh, there are many places you can easily work. I mean. There are things, I mean, you should really not uh, accept. Uh, I mean, if you have situations that are really crappy, um, you have to move. And in Europe, uh, people move, uh, I think, uh, uh, less frequently than they should because you have, uh, in some countries in Europe, you have unemployment rates of uh, 10, 15%. In other countries, you have uh, 5% or 3%. And you, could, you might ask yourself, why are people not moving? And I think the same uh, goes for the United States, huh? when people are in some areas and they're always complaining that, uh, I don't know, the weather or there are, no, there are no jobs or whatever. I mean, come on, move. Uh, it's not so expensive. It's not so difficult. And uh, Even if you have to learn the second language, you will learn it in a few months. I mean, I've done it myself. It's not so difficult. It just takes a few, few hours uh, per week. Eventually, you will learn and you will have more opportunities. Don't limit yourself. I mean, uh, accept uh, the little problems, but the big problems, you have to solve them. You should not uh, remain passive. We are not living in the Middle Ages. You can move, you can change, you can decide where to live. And waiting for the whole, uh, for the stars to get aligned uh, to give you the perfect opportunity, I think is very unrealistic. Yeah, I, I, I think for a probably most people it's 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 a question of tolerance right i mean at at some point and th this is this is what really bothers me with people here in the US when they complain about immigration right they complain about illegal immigration they they don't seem to accept or realize the probability that if they were stuck in those countries and they were in those situations that they would probably also find it intolerable to the point of picking up their families and moving, even if doing so means breaking the law and living underground, you know, as, as long as you need to. The fact that so many people are willing to do that, I think it tells me that when things become intolerable, you know, ev everybody um, has... Everybody probably would do it if if it becomes intolerable enough. So I think for people that are, you know, just complaining, and I certainly do my fair share of that, 
Um, but you know, I, I still tolerate it. I'm still willing to tolerate it. Right. I complain about the negative things while enjoying the positives. So, you know, there's, there's different ways to try to get things to change, but, um, I forget who it was that calls it this, but it's the idea of voice and exit. You can give voice, you can complain, you can protest to try to bring about change, but you can also exit if if it's not if you can't tolerate it. You don't have to just sit and, you know, only exercise your voice for as long as you can and it's it's good when you can. A lot of places you can't. So, you know, for a lot of people exit is the only option. But I I think I think people do. I think at some point when things do become intolerable and that's, you know, that that line in the sand is different for everybody. They, you know, they'll get up and move. And um, maybe some people should move sooner rather than later. I don't know. I can't make those decisions for other people. But I, I think you make a good point that we, we can sit and we can waste our energy on the on complaining. Or we can think like an entrepreneur and try to make it work for us in different ways. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things. Let's let's go to um, chapter nine. Acquire effective habits. Yeah, uh, let me just give you an example for this one. Um, it's very difficult to to change your personality when you are uh, twenty twenty five. Basically, your personality is going to be settled. Uh, you see in reality very few people who change uh, radically after their 20s, right? Because, um, I mean, even if you get all these books about uh, changing your life, blah, blah, the reality is that it's very difficult huh, to, to change your habits. So it requires uh, really pushing yourself uh, with a lot of energy and a lot of determination to acquire a new habit. And I think uh, people should be realistic, uh, I mean, I'm not talking about little nonsense like, I don't know, I'm going to wake up uh, half an hour earlier, which I don't think will change anything, actually. But I think I'm talking about fundamental habits, uh, fundamental traits in your personality. Let me just give you an example. Uh, in the books, uh, I very often uh, speak about chess players, uh, famous chess players. I find it fascinating because uh, chess players tend to be very rational in their, uh, in their games. If they're, if they're any good, they tend to be very, very uh, prudent, very rational. But uh, they have different styles. Uh, and I find it fascinating to compare their styles as players with their lifestyle. Because you learned very interesting lessons. And one of my favorite uh, uh, chess players is, uh, was uh, a champion from the 1950s, 1960s. 1960s. And his, name, his name was uh, Mikhail Tal. It was uh, from, um, I think, actually from Latvia, uh, from the Soviet Union. And uh, what was really special about uh, Tal is that uh, he was able to win uh, in situations, in games where he was actually uh, at a disadvantage. Uh, he was really, and objectively, he was lost or was almost lost. And very often he was able to win. He was able to turn the game around. And he did it uh, many, many times against uh, very strong players. Uh, he uh, he managed very, very often to win situations that were completely messy, uh, completely unpredictable. Uh, nobody likes to play like this, but the guy was always playing on the brink. And very often he got a question from, uh, from uh, chess uh, reporters, how do you manage to, gain, to win these games? I mean, it's really possible. I mean, how can you manage to do that? And Tal uh, smiled, he was a very charming smile, he'd say, in the end, it's very simple. Uh, if you take initiative all the time, 
you get a huge advantage because uh, your opponent is going to be on the defensive, that he will need more time to think. And by the time uh, he gets nervous and he starts making mistakes, uh, you will be able to finish it off very quickly. And Tal was able to have this habit of uh, having the, taking the initiative all the time. I mean, when you see his games, even in situations where there is actually nothing happening on the game, he will immediately attack. He will immediately take the initiative. If he got uh, uh, a disadvantage, he will also take the initiative. I mean, this was a guy who was constantly fighting. He would never give up. He had this habit. And this kind of habit of uh, taking the initiative is very difficult to acquire because for most people, it's very uncomfortable. It's, uh, they prefer to have a routine. Uh, they do the job. They don't go home. They watch television for two hours, and that's it. To have the habit of taking the initiative, which is a fundamental uh, psychological trait, uh, I think is worth acquiring, but you should not fool yourself. This will take you months or years, uh, because for Tal, it was like a second nature, because he started uh, to be like this when he was uh, 10 years old. But uh, if you manage to acquire these kind of habits I present in the book, which are really difficult, uh, you will have a huge advantage. Because uh, by the time the, the rest of the people are, are, are understanding anything, you are already ahead of the game because you are always asking questions. You are always uh, prodding for advantages. You are always trying to start new projects. And you will fail sometimes, but uh, you will be so fast, so determined that uh, most of the time it will be to your advantage. Yeah, that's uh, when I when I think back over, I mean, I'm 36 and... I really didn't. I really didn't start to try to. I, I didn't really start thinking about the habits that I was in until I was well into adulthood. And then, you know, for bad habits, you've got to stop doing that, and then and then try to develop good habits, effective habits. It can be. It can definitely be a challenge. Um, man, I'm just looking through the rest of the chapter headings here, and we could just go on and on and on. But I'm going to let you go. It's been about an hour, so I'm going to link to this. And I'm going to pick up this book for myself. I think this this is a, this is amazing, especially if it's full of these stories, like you say. <laughs> so do you? Um, so I'm going to link to your author page. Do you have a, a website by chance? Uh, yes, I have, a, I have a blog. Uh, Sebastian at uh, blog site. If you just type my name on on Google, you'll find the blog in one second. It's, I'm very very easy to find. Okay, John Sebastian. Yeah, I'll find that. I'll link to that as well, so that other people can find that. Um, this is fantastic, John. I'm, I'm glad to meet you. I think this was uh, very interesting, and I can't wait to read more. Yes, uh, I would like just to leave uh, your audience with an idea that I think is super important, and I don't think they will listen, they will hear it very often. Uh, I underline this in my books also very strongly because I think it's super important that uh, you should try to get in your, uh, in your habits, in your decision-making, in your attitude, um, the perspective of a lifetime. I mean, most people are going to live uh, 90 years, 95 years, uh, 85, whatever. Uh, many people live actually 100 years. When you're making a decision uh, that is going to have uh, uh, long-term consequences, even if you buy a car, I mean, you go buy a car, or you buy a house, or, or you decide uh, to get married, whatever, think in terms of a lifetime. Think you are going to live uh, these 90 years. Uh, you have many decades uh, ahead of you. If you make a mistake, um, it will have some consequences. I mean, you might get divorced or you might have to change your profession, but in the end, you will recover. You will recover in a few months or in a couple of years. 
So in the end, you will forget it because in, in 90 years, it will not make any difference. It will just be a blip in the radar. So I think if you don't take this long-term initiative, this long-term perspective, uh, people will become very easily depressed because they suffer a, a setback or they suffer some kind of uh, adversity and they get deeply depressed because they have this fantasy that uh, this Hollywood fantasy that uh, problems should be solved super quickly, super easily. And then there comes the, this, uh, I don't know, superhero and he's going to help you. I mean, this is nonsense. This is completely nonsense. It's very compelling. I mean, the movies are very nice, very interesting, but it's not like this. Uh, normally, you're going to live your 90 years, 95 years. You have plenty of time to make mistakes. You have plenty of time to learn things. Don't uh, postpone uh, important projects. I mean, if you want to learn a second language, it looks very uh, difficult, but actually it's very easy. I mean, it, it costs almost nothing. You can learn by spending 15 minutes a day. It's very, very, uh, it will open you, uh, for you, many opportunities. I mean, you have 90 years ahead of you, or 40 years or 50 years ahead of you. I mean, you can do these things very easily. I mean, don't postpone it because if you have this short-term orientation that people have, that which is only thinking about next week, thinking about next year, uh, basically you, you destroy your opportunities because uh, you have such a short, uh, such a short-sighted uh, attitude that uh, you will exaggerate the problems and you will miss the opportunities because you are not looking with the right perspective. So I think it's super important. I will remind people this every day. Think in terms of a lifetime. Don't think only in the short-term perspective because you will undermine your opportunities. You will, you will, you will harm yourself. Uh, you will get depressed uh, when you shouldn't uh, because you will have plenty of time to recover from mistakes, plenty of time to recover even from this, this COVID uh, nonsense. I mean, people will recover in a couple of years. They will not even remember it. So, I mean, don't get depressed uh, by thinking short term because you are you are damaging yourself. It's not necessary. It is irrational. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. This is fantastic. I'll link to all your stuff. And, oh, man, I just, I love that. All right, John, thank you so much. I hope you have a, a fantastic rest of your day. Many thanks, uh, Skyler. Have a great uh, week. Bye. Bye. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.